Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus, bringing you another episode in our critics series. Today I am joined by National Review and Out Magazine film critic Armand White for another discussion in our critics series. Armand White publishes every end of the year a better than list, one of the great ideas in our countercultural press. This year, Armand has agreed to join us to discuss some of these movies. Hello, sir. I am pleased to have the chance after years of reading these things to talk to you about one of the lists. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Nice to speak with you again, and uh, Happy New Year. And Thank you, sir. Happy New Year. It's a good way to uh, try to assess the year we just emerged from. Yes, exactly. It's a time of taking stock. So you like to tell us, first of all, how you got the idea of the Better Than list and how this started, low these 13 years back? <laughs> well, it's simple. And it has to do with my ideas about writing film criticism. I wouldn't write criticism. I don't think I'd write anything if all I had to say was what everybody else has to say. I don't see any point in adding to the cacophony, frankly. The real point of writing at all is to express something that's personal to you and that no one else has said, hopefully. So that's my idea behind criticism. So way back when, when I was writing for New York Press, I just got bored with the idea of coming up with a 10 best list. Everybody does it. Who cares? And why only 10? The idea just lost appeal to me. Feeling that was sparked by one particular movie that I saw, The Lovely, the biography of the Broadway composer Cole Porter. I thought it was, it was such a wretched thing, so insulting to the legacy of Cole Porter, as well as a very poorly made film. I thought D. Lovely was a debacle, and somehow I thought I can't pretend to list 10 good movies the same way everybody else does anymore when films this horrible are being foisted upon the public, when I know very well that there are better movies out there of all kinds, not just musicals, not just biographies, but better movies, period. And it just occurred to me, why not instead create a list of the good movies that are better than the big-budgeted, over-advertised, critically-supported films? That might be a real service rather than just another 10 best list. And I'm glad you did, because this is one of the few countercultural ideas in the culture. The act of praising movies in some strange way is turning into a new form of conformism and even success worship. Sure. For all the supposed individualism of our age, a situation where every man can form his own taste and form his own judgments, we invariably come up with more and more of the same and therefore have fewer and fewer people who dare publicly disagree with majority opinion. And with the flattening, the compression of available opinions about what's interesting and what's good, the ability to watch and appreciate movies that are at all unusual, even within usual genres, diminishes. Right, right. During the Christmas holidays, I went back home to Detroit to visit my family there, and I happened to look at the local newspapers there. And, of course, once again, most people who write about movies are just sheep. They're just herd followers, and they all do the same thing. So in the local papers, I saw the 10 best lists that the local papers in Detroit had published, and they all had the same movies. 
just the same list of films, uh, the same conformity, as you mentioned. Even though you know Detroit is not New York, it's not Los Angeles, it's not Gainesville, Florida, it's, you know, it's not Chicago, these critics came up with the same list of 10 films, the usual suspects. And it just confirmed for me, why bother doing this if you're just listing the same movies? And that's something that I tried to explain in my introduction to this year's Better Than List, that the practice of the 10 best list has really lost all relevance. There just needs to be a new way of looking at movies and appreciating the culture. I call the 10 best list fake news. It's a part of fake news now. Let's look at movies a different way. Let's write about and think about movies a different way. Yes, most film criticism seems to have collapsed, and it's hard to say they didn't deserve it. But on the other hand, the crisis we're going through now, partly to do with technology. People who think that coming up with the same lists means that they're somehow participating in success, that they are somehow going to be associated to phenomena that people really love and this will make them relevant, don't understand that computers and democratic aggregations like Rotten Tomatoes and CinemaScore are going to replace them ruthlessly. People who don't dare disagree with the majority cannot really get its attention and at the same time cannot really offer it anything. Writing about film is invariably not conversation, it's addressing an audience. And that requires both respect for the audience and the knowledge of what it is that people need even if they themselves do not tell you or are not quite aware of it themselves. Sure. The combination of desperation to be relevant and fear of being out in the cold, abandoned by the majority, is reducing whatever dignity film criticism has left to the status of a weathercock telling which way the wind blows. People already know or soon will find out. They don't have to bother to show any respect for that function or pay for that sort of work. I think we can get to this week's exercise in countercultural thinking. How about we get to the comparisons? We're looking to talk about three movies today. A Quiet Passion, the Emily Dickinson biopic by Terence Davis, Lady Bird, the directorial debut of Greta Gerwig, who also wrote the picture and is an actress and the most beautiful blockbuster of the year, the sci-fi movie Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets by Luc Besson. Let's get to it. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, one other point, though, before we get to the list itself, and this has to do with the issue of uh, most people who write about films, because I'm reluctant to call them critics. They all tend to write the same way and think the same opinions. I think something uh, unfortunate has happened to film culture, especially apparent at the end of the year. This rush to give out awards, this rush to participate in award season, and this hurry, this mania to become part of the Hollywood award-giving system. What I mean by that is these critics groups, they start to give out awards at the beginning of the month of December. And I think this has a terrible and laughable effect on film culture because, first of all, the year isn't over. And in point of fact, these critics groups, they have not seen all the films that have been released. They're just in a hurry to join the Hollywood Award game. Even though the year has another month to go, the critics start to give out prizes. And I repeat, even though they have not seen all the releases of the year, they just want to give out prizes because they want to be part of Hollywood so badly. And what's serious about this, what's worth thinking about, is what effect this has on film culture as a part of the humanities. 
as a part of the way that tend to art as a way of understanding our experience and understanding ourselves. What happens when reviewers give out awards so quickly without time for reflection, without even time to see all the movies, is that they stop reflecting. Films are no longer appreciated as a part of the humanities, as a part of the arts that edify our experience. It just becomes more product. The films are no longer taken seriously. The awards and the lists are taken more seriously than the art itself. This is sad, frankly. It encourages people to take less from art than they should and to focus attention on awards rather than focus attention on the content of the films themselves. Yes, caught between the industry producers and, on the other hand, the audience consumers, any chance of independence has been wasted. Right. And the search for some combination of popularity and prestige to make for a big event and justify the servility of the profession leads to a ridiculous chasing after the award season narratives. Yes. Which movies are up, which are down, who's a favorite, who's going to win. And this worthless handicapping, worthless because it doesn't predict that much, and also because the critics aren't going to get anything out of it, replaces the attention that the movies themselves should be getting. Panning terrible movies and writing at length and thoughtfully about great movies is about the only thing the profession can contribute to justify itself and earn an audience. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now, if if you want to deal with the list in this way, I think that might be a good jumping off point to deal with the first item on the list, which is why I propose that Terrence Davies' Emily Dickinson biography, A Quiet Passion, is better than the Greta Gerwig film Lady Bird, which is a juxtaposition that I thought was necessary to make, especially given the award frenzy that has happened around Lady Bird. Yes, Lady Bird was already nominated for four Golden Globes, of which it won two, and I am sure several other big nominations in its Oscar campaign are forthcoming. I have nothing against the movie, I saw it back-to-back with A Quiet Passion, and got the sense of their complementary features and of their parallels as well. They have in common strong, witty female characters who are never quiet. Yes. But the one we're silent about, and the other one, the profession, is fawning over. Greta Gerwig is a talented actress. She was extraordinary in the most comedic of the Whit Stillman comedies, Damsels in Distress, in 2012. And she might have a knack for directing as well. Certainly this debut shows her off in good form. It's an autobiographical story to a large extent, it seems young girl growing up in Sacramento, not Catholic, but sent to a Catholic school because it's a good school and the parents are afraid of violence in the neighborhood. There's an all-American premise. Right. The story shows some promise, but this is not the voice of a generation. It is crazy to think that you cannot like this movie without loving it excessively. I hope Greta Gerwig gets some confidence and rewards for her work on this movie, but I hope she's also aware that it's been swallowed up in hype, which again is better than being ignored, but it's not truthful and it is not innocent either. (laughs) Yes, yes, uh, (laughs) people have lost all sense of proportion. When you think back on Lady Bird, you wonder, you know, this little movie is... 
stir it up all so much enthusiasm. There's something wrong here, or rather there's something going on that hasn't been fully addressed or confessed. So we might as well say what I think that is. It's, it's political in the end. It has to do with Lady Bird representing the culture that some folk would like to see dominate our society over others. That would be a film such as Lady Bird, which represents certain, shall we say, politically correct values. Yes, this is a high school girl whose highest ambition is to run off to the East Coast to one of the liberal arts colleges there and to live in New York. She calls Sacramento the Midwest of California. She has nothing but contempt for her lower middle class social situation. Right. And she has not much respect for her parents either. She is almost always snide or stifled by the Catholic school. At the same time, the film shows her and similarly sophisticated teenagers in a fairly critical light. She's nasty, unkind, and doesn't really care for other people's feelings or their situation. Yes, yes. And the director is very much aware of this. She also wrote the story so that in the end, New York turns out to be a very ugly place. The place of her despair that's necessary before she understands what she had home and how important family love is, and even the stability and kindness of the school. The movie, unlike its praise, is not at all flattering of the reality as opposed to the fantasy of the liberal, artsy, pretentious East Coast. Right. That's very well and clearly stated, but it's what no one in the media talks about when they talk about Lady Bird. If that was discussed, if that was realized, and those are the ideas that media people took out of the film and so articulated and discussed, it'd be a wonderful thing. And it shows that it doesn't take a great movie to make those kinds of observations, just a decent movie to make those kinds of observations. But it's terrible when those observations are not even brought out in the public in our media. Instead, the film is praised as a feminist statement of some kind, when really it's interesting for complicating the idea of feminism. It's not even opposing the cliches of feminism. But our media refuses to discuss those things. Yes, the problem with the praise for the film is that it is not at all innocent. I would think people would appreciate a good movie yeah. from an actress beloved of film-interested liberals and leave it at that. Yeah. They wouldn't have to become blind to the criticism of liberalism implied in the movie that after all does affirm a certain form of liberalism, just one somewhat more sane. After all, the movie is a labor of love, if not a valentine, to New York. Right, right. And really, what we miss with this bizarre, dishonest appreciation of Lady Bird, we miss one of the things that's marvelous about art. It slips through the cracks of politics sometimes, or it confounds politics. Works of art last longer than political fashion because it's true to the contradictions and complexities of human experience. Even a film like Greta Gerwig's Little Lady Bird can do that, <laughs> but it's not to be discussed. You compare Lady Bird unfavorably with the biography of Emily Dickinson filmed by Terence Davis, of which you have an exalted opinion. Yes. <laughs> exalted but deserved. Terence Davies is a major filmmaker. Why? Because he's ruthlessly honest about his own preoccupations with religion, sexuality, culture. 
and how culture helps him to understand himself. And the Emily Dixon figure is ideal for him because her art and her life is a representation of what we all go through, but also what we all experience from art and why we all need art, why art helps us express ourselves and to understand ourselves. Terrence Davies does this in all of his movies, in fact, but he does it in a particularly fine way this time because he's specifically dealing with the creation of art, the creation of the artistic spirit. He shows how that happens and why it's significant. In the specific case of Emily Dickinson, he does the thing that great art always does. He makes that specific life a universally understood experience, too. To appreciate that, you may say I have an exalted (laughs) appreciation of that. I don't think it's exalted. I think it's deserved. This is what a great movie is supposed to do, and it's what doesn't happen often enough. But there it is in a quiet passion. Everyone should see it and have that experience. Yes, to start with, the film is beautifully shot and very well acted. It's as confident in its use of the beauty and propriety of mid-19th century American middle-class life and uh, the middle-class home as it is in bringing out the essentially modern sensibilities of Emily Dickinson who might be the modern poet, the American poet at that. Terence Davis makes his movie in an imitation of the way Dickinson made her poetry character in the movie, one of her early editors at some point knows how childish the poems sound in a sweet way, maybe even an innocent way, but in fact they're not childish and they're not that sweet either. Inside this shell there is a lot of suffering and anguish and even desperation sometimes. Dickinson is the poetess of longing, love before it is satisfied or impossible to satisfy. Terence Davis captures some of that in the contrast between her anger and exasperation, her height of passion and her threatening to lose her self-composure and self-control, and on the other hand the beauty of image, of color, of form, of music, and of course of composition and montage. It may be his judgment on his own form of art and perhaps on our times, that he has reversed the relationship between the sweet and the suffering, but they are both there and they bring out the contradictions of our love of the beautiful and what we're really longing for. (laughs) Yes, I agree with all that. Another fascinating aspect of the film is how Terence Davies shows the difficulty of her life, the difficulty of being an individual, and there is a very terrible, hard-to-bear truth in it, even though the film is made with, uh, you might say, exalted means, I'm going to tease you about that word, the most exalted means of artistic representation. In a sense, uh, the, the narrative style of the film is absolutely unrealistic, and yet it's dealing with the toughest, most realistic aspects of human life. It's a marvelous thing to do. It's, it's what the greatest movies have always done. It's, it's what art does. It's not simply a mimetic representation of life. It's an artistically created likeness. It's totally artful, but in the case of A Quiet Passion, it's absolutely true to the hard things that people must face as they live. And that's what, in the end, makes it powerful, because you're having an hard experience as you watch it. But I think, for any thoughtful viewer, you're having a profound personal realization as you watch it, a profound conversation with yourself, so to speak, as you watch that movie. And you realize that Emily Dickinson's complexities and contradictions are as recognizable and as moving as your own.
the farthest thing from escapism, and that's what a great movie can give you. Yes, unlike costume dramas, here you're caught up in the lives of a small number of characters who have to deal with love and suffering, with their loved ones dying, and with love failing, and keep their humanity while suffering, and remember each other. And that's deeply humanistic, but it's also in contradiction with the fact that we know how this story ends. We have to learn from Emily Dickinson's own anger and striving, how to fight against this inevitable end, while at the same time reconciling ourselves to its inevitability. In a strange way, the film serves a humanistic purpose simply by its form. Yes, yes. And one of the contradictions that I like best in the movie is how Terence Davies, himself a Catholic monkey, how he still realizes that for all the difficulties that some people might have with religion, with the concept of God, there is yet always a sense of redemption, of miracle, of blessing. And even if that blessing is simply the creation of art and the joyful experience of art that clarifies our suffering and confusion. It's marvelous stuff. <laughs> there aren't many movies that do that, frankly sad that the Quiet Passion hasn't won a bigger audience, but as I say in the final line of that graph on a Quiet Passion and Lady Bird, my hope is that throughout time, uh, Quiet Passion will gain viewers and its fine quality will be a lasting thing. Future reviewers also will appreciate it because it's got the stuff that lasts. Yes, and Terrence Davis is a director with a body of work. Hopefully, this means that in future, whoever runs across this movie or perhaps another one of his movies, the style will be arresting enough to lead people to see more, to figure out what the author wants to say, what his themes are, how close is he to Emily Dickinson, and in what ways are they different. All of these things make different artists apt to have conversations that we all oh, yeah. can benefit from. And oh, this yeah. brings us to the last film on our list, Luc Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. This was a very expensive film that took long years to make because of the 3D effects which are unparalleled. I think it is a superior movie to Avatar, although of course James Cameron pioneered the technology, but he didn't have much of a story to tell. We're jumping from the art house to the multiplex here, and from a drama filmed almost exclusively in the okay. interior of a house <laughs> yeah. to a blockbuster that travels the galaxy. What ties the movies together, of course, is the theme of love. They are both expressions of our modern intuition that we orient ourselves in the world by desire. So this is a blockbuster with a heart and a brain big enough to know that it has a heart. And as much as the Dickinson biopic is about reconciling oneself to our limits, the Valerian movie is about trying to figure out how to live with having no limits or the technological future how to embrace it to make it human. And here Luc Besson shows himself at his best. I know we too like this movie, and perhaps a few other critics did, but mostly it's been unfortunately ignored, so this is our chance to revive it. Yes, me too. But even though we're, we're talking about a less serious type of film than A Quiet Passion, there are some similarities with it between these two as well. Luc Besson is a pop filmmaker, whereas Terence Davies is an art filmmaker. And Luc Besson has had many popular successes, one of them being a movie that's a forerunner to Valerian, The Fifth Element. I find it pleasing to realize that that is a lasting film also. The enthusiasm that people have for The Fifth Element has not gone away. 
it, it remains a popular movie, and it's revived often, it's talked about often, it's remembered fondly by many people. And the reason for that is Luc Besson, he has the popular touch. He's able to visualize ideas that many people hold in common, and he's able to entertain their fantasies about the future, about desires that are real, even though they're treated lightly in his movies. And those qualities are also apparent in Valerian. I was shocked at the response that the media and even even ticket buyers had to Valerian, which is the lack of a response. And in fact, not long after the film came out, I was invited to talk at Comic-Con the gathering of fans and fiction makers in San Diego. We spoke on a panel there, and when uh, the subject of Valerian came up, and the audience booed, <laughs> I, I, I said to them, I said, I don't think most of you have seen Valerian. <laughs> I said, because if you did, you would cheer, because it has everything you love. <laughs> it has everything you love. Uh, everything that, that, you, that you like in Marvel movies and Star Wars movies, it's got all that stuff, only it's done better. I said, I said, I don't believe that most of you have even seen it. You just don't like the idea of it. Yeah, I think that this movie also reveals something strange in our pop culture consumerism. It should have been a success, but it seems it's not knowing enough. It doesn't have the sarcastic mood and the attitude that people call irony, the attempt on the part of hacks to reassure their audience right, that... Right. Nobody's going to touch their hearts here. All right, you, you, you won't have to feel anything as you want. There's no commitment. If you make a movie as earnest as Valerian, you might be left stranded by audiences that to some extent are looking for a cheap way out. Like it or not, the movies play on our passions and engage our ideas of what constitutes heroism and what rewards heroism deserves and what the price paid for it is. However, movies that take that too seriously seem to be punished, both in the media and to some extent, and more disturbingly, by audiences. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think it's fair to say that Luc Besson takes the idea of heroism and brotherhood seriously, but he has a popular touch, he has a light touch, and he's certainly not a cynic. And those qualities are different from whatever it is, I think, that is sold to the public through Marvel comics movies and through the Star Wars films. Luc Besson's attitude and also his visual dazzlement prevents people from appreciating how humane and how meaningful his entertainments are. Yes, I think that's true. I agree with you that the only false step in the movie is the very moralistic speech at the end, which is at least a speech about love. But everything else in the movie seems so easily disconsidered because it is beautiful, it is very imaginatively shot, and at the same time has the strange quality of not drawing attention to itself. All the settings are very beautiful and you enjoy looking at them and you enjoy them as much on review because they're so innovative and varied. But they don't try to oppress you. They, they're not trying to make themselves into memes or talking points on social media. And this may be holding the movie back. The plot is not special in the movie, but it is realized in such a beautiful setting that it is somewhat humanized. And the young heroes are for that reason somewhat more plausible. There's a reason these people are not as cynical and miserable and sarcastic. Their world is more beautiful. <laughs> and that's a lesson that audiences at least should learn if the media can't. Right, right. But I also think the tone is on to something unique. Well, let me, let me put it this way. 
when Luc Besson first came on the scene back in the 1980s, he was being promoted as the French Spielberg, specifically through movies like Le Donnier Combat and The Big Blue. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I thought, well, he's no Spielberg. And I resented the way he was being sold as well. But oddly enough, over time, he's come to earn the promotion, if not, in fact, to transcend it by realizing his own interests and his own filmmaking style. Quite different from Spielberg's, it turns out, but sharing with Spielberg, the popular touch that Spielberg used to have and no longer does. Yes. Bastone had become his own artist, and like Spielberg, though, is, is also always technologically focused, even though that's not his primary goal. He has said, to make an outside point, that in the making of Valerian, he felt indebted to James Cameron's Avatar. That's more proof of his technological interest. And what I found surprising and fascinating about Valerian, I believe it's the first movie since Avatar to deal with the virtual reality experience that consumers now have, which is an experience that should force them to question their own relationship to art and to commerce and to their own perceptions of reality. And it's very much a part of what's fascinating about the story in Valerian, the shifts between different tenses of reality and how they come together in the lead characters' minds. It's a fascinating approach to storytelling and is rendered through really fantastic and, and dazzling imagery all the time throughout the film. That's one thing I loved about it. And another is to go back to the conversation we had last time about continuous narratives. I think one aspect of Valerian that confused some people is the narrative itself and how it flows. And Luc Besson has become very adept at that, as also proven in The Fifth Element. The way the storyline of Valerian unfolds, it keeps moving, it keeps going forward. There's always a new character or a new perspective that holds your interest, but never so long that it becomes boring. There's always some new fascination that pops up. It's wonderful to see Luc Besson command that kind of storytelling. Yes. I do think the editing makes for a remarkably poetic and musical presentation that both moves you and also drags you along. Yes, that's a fair way to put it as well, yes. The various scenes have this strange combination of being unexpected and pleasant. And, of course, it's based on the Valerian and Laurelin comics by Cristan and Mezier, which have a remarkable depth to them that we no longer suspect in pop culture. This is a future of humanity where a lot of our democratic dreams are fulfilled. Alpha is the city of a thousand planets, and as the name Alpha suggests, it is a new beginning. And the character of the new beginning, of course, is that this is a beginning in space and uh, it has replaced any planet by technology. Now, that probably is true of what it would require to fulfill our dream. We would have to completely supplant our natural limits by technology. But the movie is also remarkably astute about noticing that the first thing that goes out the window if you want a full version of multiculturalism, not just fusion cuisine, is democracy. We are shown a world that is ruled by a fairly strange oligarchic arrangement and that has a massive surveillance police state necessary to keep the multiculturalism in line because the different ways of life are mutually incompatible. And that brings us to the second quality of the City of a Thousand Planets. It has no form. Nobody has a map of it. It grows in chaotic ways and it disappears in chaotic ways continuously. That is also true and a certain testament to the way our own memory works and our own way of refashioning civilization when once we get enough technological powers to go beyond natural limits. 
And there are further qualities in the description of the city. The setting as opposed to the plot is incredibly intelligent and would reward thoughtful study. But the plot itself also serves it in a way because it turns out to suggest that you need some commitment to love to be part of this future. I think this is also one reason why audiences and critics didn't like the movie that much. It was very serious about this one point. There's a guy chasing around bad guys so that he can ultimately propose to his girlfriend. And that's not a plot we see anymore. And we might not admit that we would like to see that and to have it done in a fairly plausible way. That's the personal commitment that would make that incredibly variegated, flamboyant, luxuriant future likable. It's got a very sophisticated vision of potential political future. At the same time, it harkens back to the essential idea, I think, of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which I bring up for anyone who isn't necessarily fond of the political explanation that you are able to bring out of that movie and might need a more conventional approach to understanding what's happening in a film like Valerian. The theme of Metropolis, that the uh, hand and the mind, they both must be meditated by the heart. Yes. It's an eternal optimism expressed there, but it's also an optimism based on a certain human need that is inescapable. Yes. So like the quote from the conclusion of Metropolis, Valerian is all about saying that you can put up with technology and the universe where you're homeless if you have love, mm-hmm. but that you must be serious about. Yes. There has got to remain some one thing unchanged as everything else can be chaotically changing. And I think that's probably already true of at least urban life in our own times. Yeah. Now, these are the movies that I had strong feelings about, and so I jumped into them. But, sir, let's talk some more about movies that you'd especially recommend, perhaps? Okay. The number two juxtaposition on my list, the French film Paris 559, Theo and Hugo. But, actually, before jumping into that, one other point which we can take from Valerian. I sometimes think another reason why the movie didn't have the popularity it deserved, especially here in the United States, is the political sophistication that you articulated, but also because there's a power sophistication. There's an approach towards the characters and towards their behavior that's not Hollywood, it's French. Valerian comes from a French comic book, and it has the sensibility of French pop culture. It deals with a certain utopian view of human relations and sexuality as well. And that's a strange combination for American kids who grew up on the virtually sexless exploits of Marvel films and Star Wars. It's hard for Americans to understand that kind of sophistication. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. But that sophistication is absolutely central to sustaining art, and particularly to sustaining popular art. I think there's one way for me to address why the films on my Better Than list, especially on the good side of the Better Than list, are largely European, no longer Hollywood, and also largely French. Yes, I noticed that. There's a cultural (laughs) reality in that, and we might as well face it. Hollywood has failed as a popular audience. The audience for culture has certain human needs that Hollywood is no longer willing to provide. But the best artists, and in this case, the best European artists, still do provide it. To me, the prime example in 2017 is the film Theo and Hugo. The latest film by a team of French filmmakers named Olivier Ducastel and Jacques Martineau. They've been making movies since the 1990s, and they always have an interesting approach to a kind of multicultural gay liberation view of society. 
That's always their theme. They've made other movies that have had bigger casts and larger stories, but this time they concentrate their interest in the simplest story of all, which is two people falling in love. But they do it in a very daring way that's also very contemporary. They deal with the sexual anxiety that's akin to the AIDS crisis and new forms of sexual hooking up that are current in this century, in this millennium. But their story stays true to the essence of human connection. It's as modern as possibly can be in terms of how people relate and in turn specifically of how, of how gay men relate, gay men's sexuality. But it's also a romantic movie and it insists upon honest and non-exploitive human relationships. It insists on the mutuality of interest and concern and love. It makes it a beautiful film. And those are all ideas that are terribly, terribly lacking in American commercial cinema these days or lacking in the commercial cinema of almost any country, which is why I contrasted Theo and Hugo with Call Me By Your Name, a sheer political product that is confused but also insincere about how it depicts gay experience and how it sentimentalizes romance and love. Yeah, I know what you mean. It is very much about fashionable politics, but also fashion as such. It portrays both a Zacharyan view of sexual transgression, the supposed daring to promote it for award season, but at the same time it offers this strange inability to think of love as distinguished from wealth right. and a luxuriant Italian villa setting. Yeah, it's almost horrifying. <laughs> horrifying. To think any filmmaker would pass that selfish and cynical view of privilege off on the public as something wonderful. And then to see that dishonesty promoted by a fawning and equally dishonest media is really appalling. As important as I feel a quiet passion is as a great work of art, I think the disaster of Call Me By Your Name is really the disgrace of the movie year. Yeah. Not simply because it takes attention away from a movie like Theo and Hugo, but because of the politics that are implicit in its promotion and in its praise. Yes, it was this year's example of what I like to call glamour progress. It's a particularly shallow ideology, but it has worked for so long, in awards season especially, but in Hollywood more broadly, that it seems like people who go through these movies cannot even tell that there is something deeply disingenuous there. Sure, yes, it happens again and again. But the difference here, specifically being that it uses gay experience and gay culture as an excuse for it, because the characters are gay, it's okay. And really, I think it turns gayness, or as we frequently say at Out Magazine, it turns queerness simply into a form of narcissism. It's appalling, frankly. It's just, how could this happen and be accepted by so many people without their recognizing it? How could it happen except that they are simply politically naive or, as you say, they're being disingenuous? Well, it's easy to buy progress this way because, as you said, this is a matter of earning credits for being transgressive or dealing with queerness. But of course, it's fairly obviously a movie made for straight people to applaud themselves because they think of homosexuality as exoticism. Right, right. Yeah. And... It's acceptance for the right social classes. Sure. who applaud themselves because they implicitly are unlike other social classes, who of course don't even deserve depiction on film. Right. Will we ever escape this? Because it's certainly, it's not new, it's just newfangled, but it's not new at all. 
the one thing that I'm most grateful to Call Me By Your Name for is the participation of the screenwriter James Ivory. James Ivory is an old practitioner of this disingenuousness from those awful Henry James and E.M. Forster adaptations that he made in the, in the 1980s and 90s, which was simply a way of selling class pretense to the movie-going audience. Yes. And without even good filmmaking, just simply selling, promoting, and commercializing the idea of class, a Western-oriented, very Anglo-European, fixated, and prejudiced. So now we have Luca Guadagnino, in partnership with James Ivory this time, is continuing that noxious practice. Yes, I think that's a very good point. I could not have put my finger on it, but you're right. It does recall this European idyll for the right social classes from the 80s and 90s. Yes. Well, sir, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I hope you will do this again sometime soon. All right. It's a pleasure to talk to you. We're a somewhat larger minority view at this point. Well, we keep pushing. Hey. (laughs) Exactly. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Goodbye, sir. Okay. Bye-bye.